I have to put you on to Armoire, the convenient solution to effortless, fresh, and stylish dressing. With an Armoire membership, you can curate the perfect wardrobe with high-quality, unique brands tailored specifically to your taste. Simply take a five-minute style quiz, select items from your personalized closet, then your chosen styles arrive at your doorstep in as little as two days. When it's time for a wardrobe refresh, just swap out your current pieces for new-to-you styles. I go from professional to the carpool pickup line, so I need a diverse wardrobe. With Armoire, I always have something fresh and on-trend for any occasion, without the clutter. I recently edited my wardrobe to staple pieces only because Armoire allows me to add new pieces monthly and return them just in time for me to do it all over again. And by renting, rather than constantly buying new clothes, I'm contributing to sustainability. Armoire is currently helping me through my chic era with all the high fashion and edgy options that I am loving. And the empowering aspect of supporting a women-founded and women-led business is so cool. With their personalized styling suggestions and diverse designer offerings, Armoire has helped me define and refine my personal style, even as trends evolve and my body changes. Whether it's a date night, a professional event, a formal affair, or just a trip to the grocery store, Armoire ensures that I am always dressed to impress effortlessly. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderish. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderish to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. Serial Streamers, welcome to episode two of Serial Streamers. This is a wild one that we chose to watch, this documentary, and I'll get into that in a second. But before I do, you're probably wondering, what in the hell is that awful bandage on your nose? And um, it's there because I was recently diagnosed with a basal cell carcinoma and I just got it taken care of. I had Mohs surgery less than a week ago, so I'm supposed to keep the darn thing covered. I'm okay. Um, I got a lot of positive comments and well wishes when I posted a vlog about it. Thank you everybody for reaching out and giving me well wishes, I appreciate it. But yeah, so also I really didn't wanna film today because I have this stupid thing on my nose, but I promised that I would keep this thing going. I got a really great uh, positive response on social media of people saying this is a great idea. We love the Serial Streamers Club concept. And there was a lot of engagement too on the most recent case that we covered, which was Mary Kay Letourneau. We watched a couple of documents documentaries on that one and then people came to the comments on Instagram and just blew it up. So I am super excited to be recording this today. I didn't want to push it out because the stupid bandage on my nose. So here we are. It's not cute and I don't love this for me. And if you see me like tapping on my nose, it's just because the stupid bandage doesn't stick very well. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a mess today, but we're going to record this. We're going to get this done. So I also wanted to explain if you didn't watch the first video or listen to the first episode on Murderish Podcast, 
podcast of Serial Streamers. You may not know what Serial Streamers is or how it came about. So recently I was just thinking, gosh, you know, there's book clubs for people who like to read and they get together and they talk about the book they read. Why can't there be a TV or a true crime TV club? So that was the genesis of the Serial Streamers Club. It's essentially a club for people who binge a lot of true crime TV like me and I'm sure like a lot of you. And it's really easy to join the club. All you have to do is follow me on Instagram at Jamie on air. That's J-A-M-I on air. Follow me there. Every couple of weeks, I announce the true crime docuseries or TV series assignment that we're going to be watching for the club. I give you about a week to watch it. And then I go back to Instagram about a week later and I officially open up the chat. So I put a post on Instagram saying, all right, you guys, let's talk about this. And that's when you guys can come through with all of your thoughts, your theories, your hot takes, your unpopular opinions on the docu-series that we watched. So would love to have you guys as part of the Serial Streamers Club. Follow me on Instagram, Jamie on air, so you don't miss the next one and all the fun. So the documentary that I chose to watch for episode two for Serial Streamers Club, I did a little poll in Instagram stories recently, and then I followed it up with a post on Instagram to let people vote on five different options. And I won't say it's overwhelming, but the majority did vote for this docuseries that I'm going to talk about today. And that is the I Love You Now Die docuseries. It's called I Love You Now Die the Commonwealth versus Michelle Carter. And I watched it on HBO, which is formerly HBO Max. No, I watched it on Max, which is formerly HBO Max. And if you guys aren't aware, this is the case, like the texting murder case of Michelle Carter, who was sort of dating a teenager named Conrad Roy. And I'll walk you through what happened, but uh, it, it got a lot of news coverage. It's pretty controversial. And this case was seen as one that could potentially set a dangerous precedent precedent for cases going forward. You'll understand why as we get into it. So again, the docuseries is called I Love You Now Die, The Commonwealth versus Michelle Carter. It came out in 2019 and I watched it on Max, formerly HBO Max. I think you can watch it on Hulu if you have a subscription to that as well. So let's dive in, you guys. All right, before we get into this docuseries, I just want to offer up a couple of disclaimers, trigger warnings. This is going to involve a lot of discussion about suicide, suicidal ideology as well as eating disorders so if those are triggers for you then um, maybe pass on this or just you know please take care before watching or listening. All right, so the main people involved in this case are Michelle Carter and Conrad Roy, Conrad Roy III. And they were both teenagers at the time they fell in love, and that was in 2012. Michelle was 15 at the time, and Conrad was 16. The way that they met was in Florida. According to Conrad Roy's sister, Camden, she says that the Roy family, so Conrad's family, traveled to his great aunt's property in Florida, and apparently Michelle Carter 
Carter's family also had property there as well. So that's where they met. They were away from where they lived when they met. And apparently Conrad Roy's great aunt introduced Conrad to Michelle and thought that they would just be great together or maybe just like as friends, they were similar age. And, you know, they pretty quickly fell in love. Now I say that in quotes because I don't know if it was true love and we're going to kind of get into that. But essentially what happened is the two teenagers got on their bikes, they took a ride and that's kind of when their relationship started or they caught feelings for each other at that point. Now Conrad and Michelle, they lived about an hour away from each other in Massachusetts and they only met about five times during their whole two-year relationship. So their relationship was almost entirely virtual. More specifically, it was text messaging. The two of them exchanged thousands upon thousands of messages, voicemails, Facebook chats, photos uh, with each other in that two-year period. Michelle Carter was an attractive teenager, blonde hair, blue eyes. She had very prominent eyebrows. Her eyebrows kind of reminded me of that model Cara Delevingne, I mean, just like killer eyebrows, pardon the pun, but her eyebrows are very prominent. Um, and of course I would pick up on that because I do pick up on things like that. Uh, a lot of people wouldn't care, but anyway, Michelle was known as being polite, a good student. She was from Plainville, Massachusetts, which is a small town. She was sweet and caring. She was known to be helpful to others and lived kind of a typical suburban teenage life. But what we would find out later, and maybe a lot of people didn't know, maybe some did, but I suspect that a lot of people didn't know, she did have severe mental health issues. She had a severe eating disorder. She was very lonely and needy. She did end up harming herself. She would cut herself at a certain point and she would talk about suicide, you know, at times with certain people and just complaining a lot uh, outwardly that she just doesn't have any friends and nobody invites her to anything. She was just incredibly lonely. Conrad Roy was also a very attractive teenage young man. He had short, light brown hair. He loved boats. In fact, he worked with his dad on boats right up until the time of his death. And his parents, Conrad Roy Jr. and Lynn Roy, they ended up divorcing while Conrad was in high school. And during that time, his grades started to slip. It was hard for him to stay focused. He had racing thoughts, memory loss, and severe depression. Conrad struggled a lot with his confidence. He looked at himself as being incapable of one day being successful. He also kind of talked about himself as being sort of a piece of trash, or sometimes that's how he felt about himself. And he would say things like, I don't know why I feel this way, but this is how I feel. So you have two teenagers with pretty severe mental health issues who are in a relationship together, and it's almost entirely virtual. And, you know, they exchanged all these text messages, and although a lot of them said, oh, I love you, babe, or hey, babe, you know, normal, nice things to each other, we would come to find out that they were having a very toxic and dark virtual relationship in the way that they communicated with each other. On July 13th of 2014, um, by this time, Conrad and Michelle had been dating or virtually dating for about two years. On that day, July 13th of 2014, 18-year-old Conrad is missing and it's reported to the Fairhaven police that he's missing and didn't come home the previous day. Lynn Roy, Conrad's mother, said she knew something was wrong because he didn't come home and that wasn't like him. On the day that Conrad 
Conrad was reported missing, his father, Conrad Roy Jr., ends up getting a phone call from somebody who tells him that his son's pickup truck had caution tape surrounding it in a nearby Kmart parking lot. So, of course, his father immediately drives over there to see what's going on. And you can imagine he's probably got just a sinking feeling in his gut. No parent ever wants to get a call that says there's caution tape around your child's vehicle. I mean, that's... It's just awful. And unfortunately, that is when Conrad Roy is found unresponsive inside of his truck, and it was determined that he died by suicide, specifically carbon monoxide poisoning. And Conrad left a journal filled with suicide notes to his family. He said things like, I love you, be happy. He also left his password, and this is crucial because this case may have never gone forward um, or been discovered that potential homicide was involved in all of this. If Conrad hadn't left his passwords to his cell phone and his laptop in those final letters. So, you know, people were able to, his family and the police eventually were able to access everything on his laptop and his cell phone. At the time they found Conroy, it was you know, determined that pretty quickly that he had died by suicide. So it's not like police had a specific reason to confiscate his phone at the time, but they did really without much reason to. And that would be a crucial fact you know, down the road. When law enforcement did end up looking into Conrad's phone, they went straight to his messages. And that is how they linked Michelle Carter to Conrad Roy, because most of his messages, the large majority, are to and from Michelle Carter. So here is, I'm going to go ahead and read one particular text exchange between Conrad and Michelle. And these particular text messages were sent on the day that Conrad died. So just keep that in context. So Michelle starts things off and she says, Conrad. Michelle says, hey, you there? Conrad says, hey, sorry, I fell asleep. Michelle says, it's okay. Why haven't you done it though? Conrad, I'm too messed up to. Michelle, what are you thinking about? Conrad, my head. Michelle, you can't think about it. You just have to do it. You said you were going to do it like I don't get why you aren't. Conrad, I don't get it either. I don't know. Michelle says, so I guess you aren't going to do it then? All that for nothing? Michelle says, I'm just confused like you were so ready and determined. Conrad, I am gonna eventually. Conrad, I really don't know what I'm waiting for, but I have everything lined up. Michelle says, no, you're not, Conrad. Last night was it. You keep pushing it off and you say you'll do it, but you never do. It's always gonna be that way if you don't take action. Michelle, you're just making it harder on yourself by pushing it off. You just have to do it. And then Michelle says, do you want to do it now? And then later on in that text, later on in the day or at some point, they continue texting and Conrad says, I just don't know how to leave them, you know? Michelle says, say you're going to the store or something. You're overthinking. Conrad, I know I'm overthinking. I've been overthinking for a while now. Michelle says, I know, you just have to do it like you said. So the context of their text messages is Conrad has been suicidal for a while. And he has explicitly expressed that to Michelle on numerous occasions in their communications. So she knows exactly where his head's at. And this is what she's texting him. Clearly, she's encouraging him to follow through with it. Now, he came up with the idea on his own, but she certainly is encouraging him to do it. So that is where this whole thing gets really disturbing 
And when detectives see these messages, they're just like, okay, this might be a criminal case. And they go ahead and pass all this information on to the district attorney. Three months later, on October 2nd of 2014, detectives interview Michelle at her high school in Rentham, Massachusetts. And when they ask if she spoke with Conrad right before his passing, she says, I don't think so. So she's lying to them. Although she does admit that he'd been talking about suicide with her. And she also admits that she talked to him the night before on July 12th. She said the phone hung up and that she was scared for him. What Michelle doesn't say anything about is that she was in contact with Conrad like right up until almost the very moment, really right up until the very moment that he died by suicide. She leaves that part out. So detectives then inform Michelle that they have a warrant to confiscate her cell phone and that's what they do. From there, the Massachusetts State Police, they extract all the data and they come to find over 60,000 messages between Conrad and Michelle. And again, these are voicemails, text messages, picture messages, Facebook chats and the like. So detectives kind of parse out the work, so to speak, and they each go home, you know, each night and each of them reads about a thousand messages. So by the time the detectives meet up at work the next day, they've each or they in total, they've read about 2000 of the 60,000 messages. So it was a really tedious job to get through all the data. And once they're done reading all the messages, the detectives say something like, you know, they basically they conclude that if it wasn't for her, he's still alive today. So they're definitely looking at this as not just being a suicide, but potentially a homicide. And the DA does decide to go ahead with uh, involuntary manslaughter charges. And on February 5th of 2015, so this is the following year after Conrad's death, the grand jury does return an indictment for involuntary manslaughter against Michelle Carter. She's booked and released on bail the next day. And the Roy family, they are completely shocked by these text messages. They had, or at least they claim, and I have no reason not to believe them, but they had no idea that these messages existed, that she had been encouraging him to kill himself, and they're just completely gobsmacked by all of this. And the Roy family essentially says that Michelle was bullying him into doing it. In the documentary, they show some video footage of Conrad about a month prior to his death. So specifically June 13th of 2014, Conrad is on video and he's talking about his severe social anxiety and depression. Depression. He says things like, I want to take steps to control it. I want to try better to contribute to conversations. He says, social anxiety and depression, it's controlling me. He says, I have a great mom and a great dad. I'm so depressed. There's something wrong with me. If I keep talking, though, it'll get better. So I think that it sounds like he knows he's depressed. He knows he has severe social anxiety. And that maybe if he opens up about it publicly and does these videos and talk, the more he talks about it, maybe the, he'll get better. It was so heartbreaking to see him just a month before his death saying these things because it clearly in that moment, he's like, if I talk about it, it'll get better. So clearly he's trying to take steps to make himself better, which is just heartbreaking. And his mom, Lynn, says in the documentary that she wished she picked up on the signs, especially the week that he died. But she said... It seemed like he was doing a lot better at that time, so she had no reason to believe that he was, you know, about to uh, die by suicide. Just prior to his death, Conrad had told his family that he really wanted to get his boat captain's license. And in fact, he did do that just prior to his death. He got a certificate and there's a picture of him holding it. And his grandfather becomes very emotional talking about it because 
He was just so proud of his grandson for achieving that goal of becoming a captain. In the documentary, Conrad's father, Conrad Roy Jr., says he definitely blames Michelle, um, says she's directly responsible for his son's death. And there are even more text messages between the two of them that are shown on the documentary. Things like Michelle saying, drink bleach, hang yourself, jump off a building, stab yourself. I don't know. There's a lot of ways. So she's literally listing ways that he can do it. It's just so disturbing. Unbeknownst to Conrad's parents, you know, their relationship is just really destructive to both of their mental health. When you read these text messages, you see just how dark it gets between the two of them. And these are two teenagers who are struggling deeply with mental health issues. So the two of them being in a relationship together, it's almost like it fueled the fire. Though Conrad's family claims that you know, they thought he was doing better during this time and that they didn't, they weren't aware of the dark text messages between Michelle and Conrad. Conrad at some point before his death does tell Michelle through text message that his mother, Lynn, did know he was suicidal. He says that she saw his Google searches, which were all about like suicide, how to do it, and just all these dark Google searches. That said, you know, it's not been substantiated that she did know that he was actually suicidal in the days leading up to his actual death. So I don't want to blame her for anything. I just want to lay out the facts that Conrad did tell Michelle that his mother knew, but I have no reason to believe that she actually knew in the days leading up to his death. Although Michelle's been indicted by a grand jury, the defense actually appeals the grounds for the indictment. The defense claims that although the text messages were reprehensible, they were not criminal. They're trying to make the distinction between the two that, yes, yeah, she did something terrible, but it doesn't rise to the level of criminality. And the defense claims that words alone used as a means, and this is not a quote, but this is what I took from it, that words alone used as a means for homicide is sort of like a dangerous path path to take because it could set a precedent for future cases for, you know, to say basically like your words can be a weapon in a homicide. And, you know, up until this case, there really hasn't been precedent for that type of case. But we live in a new world. It's virtual. And so the defense is trying to appeal on the grounds that, you know, this doesn't rise to the level of criminality. Yes, it's reprehensible, but there's no statute that says that words can be used as a weapon in a homicide. Essentially, it opens up Pandora's box, according to the defense, that verbally encouraging suicide, you know, essentially is not a crime. And, you know, the defense goes on to say something like, it's a chilling effect on free speech. And this case will set a precedent, as I mentioned earlier. The defense further argues that Massachusetts specifically does not have a statute that says that verbal encouragement of death is a crime. And they're making these arguments in the Supreme Court. And one of the Supreme Court judges argues that Massachusetts does have an involuntary manslaughter statute that states wanton and reckless conduct causing the death of someone is criminal. So the judge is saying that potentially her words are wanton and reckless conduct that led to somebody's death, which could be considered criminal. So it, it's a really interesting case. And I know that people sort of land on both sides of it. And we'll talk on Instagram about how I, I have come to a conclusion, but I, I've been I kind of bounced all back and forth for a while until I kind of landed on something. So we'll get into that in the Serial Streamers Club on Instagram. But for now, let's go on with the story. The defense further argues that it was Conrad who was solely responsible for his own death. They say that he got the generator, 
He made plans and he set everything up and that Michelle is not responsible. The court does make a decision on the appeal. They say things like um, there was constant pressure, a campaign of coercion, subvert his willpower, and basically that although Michelle Carter was not physically present, she was had a virtual presence. So very, very, very interesting. And the court continues on writing in the final moments when the victim had gotten out of his truck, expressing doubts about actually following through with it, that Michelle Carter told him to get back in. And that is what this case hinges on. So Michelle Carter at one point had sent a text message to a friend after Conrad's death and essentially took the blame for his death and said, you know, in other words, it's all my fault. I could have stopped him. He got out of the truck because it was working and he was scared. And I told him to get back in. So Michelle is telling her friend that Conrad actually sort of chickened out that day and had turned the generator on and the, you know, the vehicle must have been filling up with, you know, fumes and he felt it working and he got out of the truck, according to her, and t reached out to Michelle in a text message and, you know, told her that he's scared. I don't know if it was a text message or a phone call, but either way, he reached out to her and was like, I'm scared. And Michelle explicitly told Conrad, get back in. And he did. So it's that part that this case hinges on. Now, what I will say is that although Michelle Carter said that that happened there is no evidence to prove that it happened she says that it happened but there is no evidence there's no message that was ever discovered that that actually happened so it's kind of interesting because Michelle says it happened but if it's a lie she told a lie that absolutely ended up biting her in the ass in the end. Anyway, let's let's move. Let's keep going on. So the Supreme Judicial Court uh, ends up upholding the indictment. It's the get back in part that really got them. And uh, like I said, it, this the get back in part will play a huge role at her future trial. June 5th, 2017 marked the first day of Michelle Carter's trial, which was held in Taunton, Massachusetts. There was a lot of news coverage. There were just people, you know, media just piled on top of each other that couldn't wait to get a shot of Michelle coming to and from the courtroom and get quotes and things like that. Um, and everybody was just piled up outside the courthouse. Now, when you see footage of Michelle walking to and from and at trial, she's visibly lost quite a bit of weight um, from what she looked like before Conrad's death. Now, of course, that could be, you know, attributed to a lot of things, and I don't know what was going on, but my heart did break a bit for her just seeing her appearance and looking so frail and thin because I was aware that she did have a severe eating disorder, but also just like the stress and the not eating. And I'm a mom, and so for a brief moment, I was able to put aside her heinous messages um, and actions and just look at a teenage girl who very clearly needs help. And uh, it was just shocking to see. Michelle Carter ends up waiving her right to a jury trial. So she chooses a bench trial. So Judge Lawrence Muniz is going to decide her fate. And I think the defense's thought process on this decision for a bench trial was that, you know, juries can sometimes be emotional. These are lay people. These are not people usually with a lot of legal, you know, knowledge of the law. And so sometimes they might decide things based on emotions. And the defense definitely didn't want that because you know, they're thinking that a jury would definitely convict her because they would just be so pissed off and enraged by her text messages because they were very forceful and disturbing. So during the trial, it comes out that about one hour 
After Conrad's death, Michelle texts Conrad's sister, Camden, and she says, Hey Camden, it's Michelle Carter. I don't know if you remember me, but I'm dating your brother again. Ha ha. Does your mom know where he is? So you have to imagine, you know, this is one hour after Conrad died. His family still doesn't know that he's dead. They have no idea. Michelle knows, and she's reaching out to Carter's sister saying, does your mom know where he is? So she's inserting herself into this, but not really letting on, well, not letting on that she knows anything about his death and he's dead at this time. So it's just really disturbing. About a day or two later, after Conrad's body is discovered, Michelle reaches out again to his sister Camden and she says, Hey love, please talk to me if you need to. I want to do everything I can to help you and your family through this difficult time. So again, she's inserting herself and she's not letting on that she knew anything about why he died or why he did it or that she was actually talking to him a lot the day that he died by suicide and in the minutes leading up to it, in fact. Michelle, during this text exchange, asks Camden if it's going to be an open casket. She also asks whether Camden's going to say anything at Conrad's funeral. Camden then informs Michelle that he's been cremated and Michelle proceeds to ask Camden if she could have some of his ashes, which looking back, at it's a little bit weird. Now, I have to say that if this was a real bona fide, loving, you know, widely accepted relationship, uh, for lack of better terms, I can understand why somebody would want a part of their partner's ashes, even if they're not married, you know, and these are teenagers. But in the context of everything and everything we know, this is a bit odd. And Camden says so at trial. She says, yeah, I found it a little bit weird. The prosecution opens things up at trial by saying that Michelle was extremely needy and she craved attention and that she did not have many clothes close friends. They said that she incessantly sends text messages to girls at school, but they're all kind of like too busy to hang out with her. So again, it's that rejection. They're painting the picture of a very lonely and needy girl who other girls are really not taking to and wanting to hang out with. The Commonwealth then says that as the school year came to an end, Michelle needed something to get these girls' attention. So two days before Conrad's death, and the word before is very important here. On July 10th of 2014, Michelle sends a text message to Sam Boardman, a schoolmate and kind of like a loose friend of hers. And she says, Conrad is missing. And the Commonwealth says, she did this for attention. And she says that this was Michelle's way of testing out her plan to see if Conrad did go actually go missing and maybe actually did die. Could she get the attention that she wants from it? So this is her kind of doing a dry run with her friend Sam, um, telling her that he's been that he's missing. And in fact, he's not missing. And all the while, Michelle is actually at the time that she's telling Sam two days before Conrad died, that Conrad is missing. She's actually texting Conrad during that time and encouraging him to get the gas machine. So it just, she's playing double duty here and it's just so heinous. The prosecution goes on to say that now that the girls are aware that Conrad's missing, that Michelle actually has to go forward with making it happen, making him go missing. Otherwise, she's going to be seen as a liar. And in the days following Conrad's death, Michelle is posting a lot online. She's seeking sympathy. She's saying things like, fly high, my angel. And people started consoling her around this time and visiting her a lot. And essentially, the prosecution is saying she got the attention she so desperately wanted during that time. 
time. A few months after Conrad's death, Michelle puts together this event and she calls it Homers for Conrad because he was really into uh, baseball. And she texts a friend during, she sends a text message to a friend around this time. And she says, hey, I put the Homers for Conrad event on Facebook. Check it out. I'm like famous now, haha. So basically the event is to raise money for mental health awareness. And you know, you can maybe gather from that message that she sent that the part about, oh, I'm famous now, haha, that maybe that's kind of what she wanted out of all of this, but maybe not. There's a witness at trial that testifies that he wondered why the tournament was being held in Plainville, Massachusetts, and not in Mattapoisett, where Conrad's family lived. And essentially, Michelle, he reaches out to Michelle Carter through text message and asks her, like, why is this thing not being held in Mattapoisett, where all of his friends and family are? And she's just kind of like, well, because Plainville's where I live. And in the documentary, they actually show the text messages between Michelle and this witness, who was a friend, apparently, of Conrad's. And it's pretty clear that Michelle wanted to make sure that she got credit for the Homers for Conrad idea because she sends a text message to his friend and says, you're not trying to take credit for my idea, right? LOL. So she's just like, dude, you're not trying to take credit for my idea. Like she's very kind of obsessive about everybody knowing that this was her idea and her event that she planned. And after everything comes out and people are aware of the dark text messages between Michelle Carter and Conrad Roy, they're thinking things like she's essentially like a heartless bitch who killed to get popular, um, an ice queen who coerced him. And people just absolutely came after her online and a lot of people were encouraging her to kill herself out of all this, which is, it's almost to be expected with the way things go online these days, especially, you know, if you've got a villain, so to speak. Um, people are definitely going to speak their minds, and they did. And it's interesting because a lot of people, I would imagine, would think that given Michelle's perceived to be weak mental state, that maybe she would have harmed herself during this time. Yeah, just sad all around. On February 20th of 2014, this was a few months before Conrad's death, he sends Michelle uh, he texts Michelle a picture of him with a bruised face. Michelle says, are you okay? Did you get beat up? And essentially what happened was um, there was a call to police about an assault. And Conrad wrote a written statement to police saying that his dad punched him repeatedly and pinned him down so he couldn't get up. And his father actually was arrested for assault and battery. Now the father in the documentary says something like, I know what happened. We fought each other. And if it happened again, I would do it like that that all over again. He doesn't elaborate on what actually happened. He just says, I know what actually happened and we fought each other. During trial, the defense calls a doctor, Dr. Peter Bregan, and he had reviewed Conrad's toxicology reports. And he finds that Conrad, at the time of his death, was taking Celexa for depression. The doctor says that some psychiatric drugs actually cause suicidal ideation and Celexa is potentially one of them. The doctor goes on to say that the drug was a contributing factor to Conrad's death, but it wasn't the factor. There were other factors involved, namely Michelle Carter. The doctor goes on to say during trial that during the time of his death, you know, Conrad was also dealing with a violent divorce. Apparently Lynn, his mother, had struck his father and caught an assault charge for that. So it was just really a lot to bear for Conrad, who was already having his own severe struggles 
hospitals during that time. It also comes out during trial that Michelle Carter was taking psychiatric drugs since the age of 14. She was taking Prozac, although she would later switch just before Conrad's death, she would switch to Celexa, which was the drug that Conrad was taking. But um, previously she had been taking Prozac. And according to Dr. Bregan, he says that that drug greatly increases the risk of suicide, especially for somebody with anorexia. And it comes out in the documentary that previously that Michelle had attempted suicide as well. And she goes into specifics as far as how she tried to do it. And she tells a friend about it, um, but she ends up chickening out. Those are her words. In October of 2012, right after Michelle and Conrad met, he ends up hospitalized in a psychiatric ward. In October of 2012, right after Michelle and Conrad met, he had a very serious suicide attempt and so bad that he ends up being in a psychiatric hospital. And it comes out that he had at least four suicide attempts prior to that. So this is a history with Conrad of him being depressed and attempting suicide before he actually followed through with it. Dr. Breger points out, you know, on behalf of the defense at trial, he points out that Michelle demonstrated that she was really worried about Conrad during that time in 2012 when he had a really serious suicide attempt. So the doctor is essentially pointing out that Michelle was trying to help Conrad stay alive for the first year plus of their relationship. The doctor says that Michelle was following Conrad's lead into a very dark place. And in the documentary, it comes out that Conrad at one point had sent Michelle a text message saying, we should be like Romeo and Juliet at the end. And she writes back something like, oh, I'll be your Juliet. And he writes back, well, you know what happens at the end, right? And obviously at the end, we all know the story that, you know, they end up killing themselves. To which Michelle responds in all caps, oh, fuck no, we are not dying. So clearly the defense is trying to demonstrate that for the first about year and a half of their relationship, Michelle didn't want to die, didn't want Conrad to die, and was saying, Sending encouraging text messages for the better, like trying to help him stay alive and help him through this, and that she was worried that he might actually do it and didn't want him to do it. And it occurred to Dr. Bregan that Michelle was in an abusive relationship, according to him. He says there was constant harassment from Conrad to Michelle. And at one point, he says something to, to the effect of, the only way I'd hate you is if you told anyone about this. And Michelle ends up listening to him and she tells no one about his suicidal thoughts and conversations with her. So he's he's just sort of, you know, according to the defense, Conrad is just constantly, constantly, constantly sending these dark text messages, dark text messages over and over and over. So at a certain point, Michelle turns to where, and the doctor argues that her shift in the way she thinks about all of this and, and her communication with Conrad, the shift comes when she changes medications from Prozac to Celexa right before Conrad's death. And at that time, the doctor introduces the idea of involuntary intoxication, saying at trial that this is the explanation as to why Michelle's actions are not criminally intended, meaning that the drug had taken over. It had her involuntarily intoxicated and she didn't know that she wasn't. She thought that she was helping Conrad get to heaven. She thought that 
she thought that she was being helpful to get him to a good place by encouraging him to commit suicide. The doctor says at trial that the neurochemistry of the brain can alter if it's intoxicated by psychiatric drugs and it can alter thoughts and behaviors. The doctor goes on to say that Michelle thinks she's doing a good thing to get Conrad to heaven. And he says that like anyone in a hypomanic state, Michelle gets very angry when she's interrupted, which is sort of an explanation from the doctor for her forceful text messages. She gets aggravated when Conrad doesn't want to do it and she's like, no, do it. He's saying that that's her being in a hypomanic state from the drug she was taking. On July 12th, 2014, the day of Conrad's death, the two of them have been texting all day. And of course, we all know by now that she is encouraging him to follow through with it. He's hesitant, but at their last phone call is recorded and this is this would be the last phone call of Conrad's life was shortly after 7 p.m. And like I said earlier, Michelle ends up admitting in a text message to her friend, Sam Boardman, in September of 2014, it's her fault and she could have stopped him. She says that he got out of the truck because it was working and he got scared and I fucking told him to get back in, Sam. So she's blaming herself and she's admitting that she had fault in this. But again, like I said earlier, nobody was ever able to verify that that really happened. The part where Conrad got out of the truck because he was scared, reached out to Michelle, and that she encouraged him to get back in. We only have Michelle telling her friend Sam that it happened, but the doctor points out at trial on behalf of the defense that Michelle lies sometimes and bends the truth. And so we don't know what is lie and, and what's a lie and what's truthful. In the documentary, there's another psychology expert who says that involuntary intoxication isn't really widely used in the profession. She goes on to say that a very small percentage of people are manic due to psychiatric drugs. So she's countering Dr. Breger's testimony during the trial. And it becomes very apparent in this documentary documentary that Conrad and Michelle had a very strange and toxic relationship. Sometimes he could be a bit mean to her and he would text her something like, fuck you, bitch. And she would write back like, what? Why do you say that? And he's like, haha, just kidding or haha, JK. So you could see in the tone of some of his text messages. I think at one point, Michelle reaches out to him and says, do you think we'll get married one day? And his response was something like, are you okay? So the relationship might have been a bit one sided like or maybe they were both getting something from it right maybe maybe it was true love maybe it wasn't but Michelle seemed to be getting companionship and intimacy in her own way that she do so desperately seemed to crave and Conrad was getting a safe space to let out all of his dark thoughts and talk about suicide and all of these things that he really wasn't talking about with anybody else and that he knew that she would keep his secrets. But did it seem to me like he was truly in love with her and saw a future with her? No, not at all. Um, she sometimes led on that she saw maybe a future with them and was sort of living her own little fantasy. But the relationship was just strange and toxic, in my opinion. And there were times when they would get close to making plans to hang out, but then it would just never pan out. They would just sort of back away from that and keep things virtual just through text message. It comes out in the documentary that Michelle was completely obsessed with the TV show Glee and the main character, Leah Michelle, so much so that there was an interview that Leah Michelle did on TV after her 
boyfriend had died and he was also her boyfriend on the show Glee. Uh, they were the two main characters. After he died, she did a real life interview and she would say certain things during that interview and then Michelle would go and say those exact things to friends in conversations, almost as if it was her own words, but they were words that she 100% plucked from Leah Michelle's real life interview. So it was a bit bizarre. At one point during their relationship before Conrad's death, Michelle admits to Conrad that she really liked a girl named Alice on her softball team. And at the time Michelle met Conrad, Alice sort of fell out of contact with her. So they seemed to be like getting really close on the softball team and spending a lot of time together. Michelle said that they would flirt and it seemed kind of like a relationship and she's admitting to Conrad that she doesn't know if this means she's bisexual but that she liked what she had with Alice and that they would flirt together. But Alice cut off all contact and Michelle admitted to Conrad that she was really missing Alice during that time. There was a reporter who was interviewed for the documentary and he says that Alice and her mother met with him and they told him that Michelle is a sociopath and that she made everything up and that there was absolutely no relationship or flirting or any physical contact between Michelle and Alice. So they shut those rumors down. They didn't do it on the documentary, but a reporter is telling us secondhand what they said during his meeting with them. After the conclusion of Michelle's trial, uh, the judge deliberates for two days and he comes back and he starts to read his statement to the court to give a reason for his decision. And he says in part that there is a duty to take feasible steps to alleviate the risk. He says the reckless failure to fulfill this duty can result in a manslaughter charge. He says Miss Carter takes no action. She had a duty to act. And he's talking about that moment when Michelle tells Conrad to get back in the truck when he's already gotten out because he's scared. And again, we can't verify whether this actually happened, but we have a text message from Michelle to Sam Boardman saying that it did happen. The judge goes on to say that Michelle's actions and her failures to act come into play with his decision. And he says that she exhibited wanton and reckless behavior in her words. And the judge concludes that her conduct did result in Conrad's death. And he finds her guilty of involuntary manslaughter. After this point in the documentary, the doctor, after this point in the documentary, the doctor comes back on screen in the documentary. And he says that, you know, he points out that Michelle lies a lot. In fact, at one point, she lied through text message to a friend saying that she had sex with Conrad. And then later, she lies again and says that he raped her. Now, I'm saying it's a lie because we have no evidence to say that he that they did have sex or that he raped her. So it's assumed that these are lies that she told about Conrad before his death. Michelle faced a maximum of 20 years in prison. Her father ends up writing a letter to the judge, a very heartfelt letter talking all about Michelle and what a good person she is and essentially just asking the judge for leniency in sentencing. The Commonwealth is asking the judge to sentence Michelle to 7 to 12 years in prison for her actions. The judge ends up sentencing her to 15 months in prison plus 5 years probation, but he does allow her to be free until the appeals process works 
works its way through the courts. And people are really hot and bothered about this because they're saying that, you know, Michelle could potentially serve zero prison time if her appeals are granted because of the judge's decision to allow her to be free while the appeals process works its way through the courts. In February of 2019, about a year and a half after she was sentenced by the judge, her appeal ends up being denied and Michelle's taken into custody in court. By this time, she has a brand new haircut. It is very short. It's sort of like shaved really short in the back, but kind of long in the front and it's blonde. So her appearance is, is changed a bit. And Michelle begins serving her 15 month sentence and she's serving it at Bristol County Jail in Dartmouth, Massachusetts. Michelle actually ends up serving 12 months and she's released three months early on good behavior. And she's released in January of 2020. You know, as of today's date, she might still be living with her parents in Plainville, Massachusetts. Michelle and her family did not participate in the documentary. Uh, today, she would be 25, soon to be 26. And according to Cosmopolitan, she was seen doing yard work in April of 2022. And this was potentially the first time she'd been spotted in public, not in public, but outdoors since she'd been released from prison. As of today, Michelle Carter is no longer on probation and the previous order for her not to be able to profit on this story has now been lifted. So she could potentially profit from this if she chooses to. Conrad Roy's mother, Lynn, who I believe now goes by Lynn St. Dennis, she has been lobbying. In 2019, she was lobbying for Conrad's Law, which would criminalize suicide coercion. But as of early 2022, the bill has yet to be passed. We talked a lot about some really dark topics in this episode. And so, you know, if you or anybody you know is struggling with suicide, help is available at the Suicide in Crisis Lifeline, you can either call or text 988 and get immediate help. Also, if you or anybody you know are struggling with an eating disorder, help is also available for that at nationaleatingdisorders.org. So in closing, of course, I have a lot of thoughts and opinions about this case, and I'm going to hold back as I always do and wait until the Instagram chat, which will be about a week from the day this episode drops on the Murderish podcast feed. And at that time, I'll put a post out on Instagram. We can all share our hot takes and you know comments thoughts I'm sure everybody's got a lot to say about this one I certainly do but all in all I think that everybody can agree this is just tragic all around and there are different layers to this that sort of add context to it that it's not really just a black and white case but it is tragic and a lot of people you know ask themselves would Conrad Roy still be alive today had Michelle Carter never entered his life and of course we'll never know the answer to that so again you guys if you want to be part of the serial streamers uh, true crime tv club it's simple all you have to do is follow me on instagram at jamie on air and basically what i do is every couple of weeks i will go to instagram i will announce the true crime tv series or documentary assignment then I'll give you about a week to go and watch the docu-series or TV series. Then I'll come back to Instagram and I will put a post out and basically open up the chat and say, all right, you guys, we've all had enough time to watch this series. Let's go with your hot takes, your opinions, and essentially just open up the chat and everybody can share their thoughts on the docu-series. We had a lot of fun. I don't want to say a lot of fun with the last case because the last case was also very dark. It was the Mary Kay Letourneau case, but there were a lot of really interesting comments on the Instagram post. So go check that out if you haven't already. And it's never too late to weigh in. So if you still want to talk about the Mary Kay Letourneau case, go back to the post that I did and, you know, fire away. It's fine. But yeah, make sure you're following me on Instagram.
Instagram so that you can enter the chat on the Conrad Roy and Michelle Carter case. It's a tough one to talk about and I fully understand that this one is going to be very triggering for certain people. It's just really sensitive but it did happen and I do think that the more we talk about these things that the better off everybody will be. But this episode may not be for everybody and I understand that. All right, everybody, I will see you about a week from now on Instagram where we're gonna talk about this case and share everything we wanna say about it. Until then, everybody stay safe out there and I will see you very soon. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.